we're going to read together the first verse of Psalm 23. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you can probably catch on to it pretty quick anyway. Um, And we'll have it on the screen behind us. So this is our passage for this morning. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is the word of the Lord to you. Before you sit down, I'm going to pray. Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, have mercy on us. We love you and we need you. God, I ask that by your spirit, you would put into our hearts what is in your heart. Teach us from your word this morning. And we ask these things in the holy and blessed name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, we're going to be looking at a psalm today and all this summer. And uh, psalm is a type of Hebrew poetry. And I realized that poetry is kind of like the cat of the literary world. It's pretty polarizing. You either love poetry or you hate it. Um, And when I was in high school, uh, for most of high school, I pretty much hated poetry. I remember discussing poems ad nauseum and thinking, we just read an essay on this poem that is 15 times as long as the poem itself. I seriously doubt that the poet had all these things in mind when they wrote this. Do you guys ever have that experience when people are analyzing poetry? Um, But things changed for me my senior year in high school because I had a really good teacher for AP English, and she really wanted us to like literature and like poetry, and so she gave us kind of uh, assignments where we could spend time with it and make it our own. And I remember we had this big, like, anthology kind of book of poetry, and she said, pick any poem in there, and I just want you to do a presentation, and she gave us very few guidelines. We could do it how we wanted to. And even though it was a pretty cool assignment, I was still bummed because it was still picking a poem and analyzing poetry, which was not my thing. But then I found a poem called Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. I didn't know what that meant at the time, And I'm going to be honest, I read it this week, and I still have no idea what that poem is about. But I did know that the band Rush had a song called Xanadu, in which they talked about Kublai Khan, and that's all I needed to pick that poem. Uh, If you don't know who Rush is, um, they had a few hits in the 80s. People know them for Tom Sawyer. But the reason that I loved Rush is because, well, there were three like virtuoso musicians. I was a, you know, little sprouting drummer and, and Rush's drummer had like 50 drums on his kit and was ridiculous. He was really good. But on top of that, they wrote these epic long prog rock songs about weird sci-fi and fantasy stuff. It was super dorky. And um, if you don't believe me, I've got a picture of Rush from the 70s That's the level of dorkiness that we're talking about, and that also probably tells you a little bit about what I was like when I was in high school. But uh, here's my point. Um, As cool as my English teacher was, 
There was nothing she could do to tell me about the importance and significance of poetry to make me like it. What changed for me was finding out that one of my musical heroes was into poetry. That's what made me give it a chance. So if poetry is not your thing, that's okay. And I'm not going to try to convince you to like poetry. But I am going to try to convince you to like the Psalms because the greatest hero of all time was into the Psalms. And we're going to start with the world's most familiar psalm. Apparently, that's an actual stat that I've read, like the most well-known, not just psalm, but the well, most well-known passage in the world is Psalm 23, because we hear it in movies after someone's died, your granny cross-stitched it, like you, you kind of see it everywhere you go. But um, today starts a new summer sermon series. Say that three times fast. Summer sermon series. Um, And we're going to spend the entire summer taking an in-depth look at Psalm 23. Um, So my hope, and I mean this, my hope is that each one of us will have Psalm 23 memorized by the end of this summer. And I don't just mean like you had to memorize the preamble to the Constitution or something like that, but I hope that by the end of this summer, you'll be able to speak Psalm 23 and pray it, and sing it, and actually mean it. Um, Out in the lobby for the next couple of weeks, we are going to have some hanging prints for sale with artwork um, for Psalm 23, and you can pay for those through the Church Center app. Um, We also are going to have some free postcards for you to take. In addition to that, if you go to orangewood.org slash Psalm 23 or to the homepage of the Church Center app, you'll find a video on why we chose this psalm for the summer. And uh, also when you go there, you can get some lock screens and home screen images to help with memorization. Um, But what we're going to do this summer is we're going to take one short phrase or or line each week. And if you memorize each short phrase by the end of the summer, you're going to have the the whole psalm memorized. So we're going to start with the first verse. We don't even have a slide for this. Repeat after me. It's like like your wedding vows or something. Uh, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Let's do that one more time. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. So you have the first verse of Psalm 23, and there's only six verses, so this is not going to be super difficult. Uh, But since we're going to be spending all summer in one of the Psalms, I want to just briefly talk to you about the whole deal with Psalms. They're different from other types of literature in the Bible. Um, You know, we spend a lot of time in Galatians, which is an epistle, which is just fancy Bible speak for a letter. Um, But the Psalms are a type of Hebrew poetry, like I was saying. And knowing that the Psalms are poetry is helpful in interpreting them because they aren't history. They aren't narratives just telling a story. They aren't a list of commands. And the reality is you're going to get some of that in some of the Psalms, but that's not the primary purpose of them. In many ways, the Psalms are not unlike other poetry because they're artistic expressions. And some of them are deeply personal. Um, Some of them you'll find are broadly relatable. Some of them are full of joy. Some of them are full of anguish. But like I said, I'm not going to try to convince you to get into poetry, but I'm going to try to convince you to get into the Psalms. And here's why. 
unlike any other poetry, even though these poems were written by human hands, they were inspired by God. And the Psalms teach us how to respond to God. For 3,000 years, the Psalms have been the prayer book and the songbook of the people of God for 3,000 years. In fact, Jesus knew the Psalms. The Psalms are the most quoted book in the New Testament. Jesus knew them, he sang them, and he prayed them. According to Matthew 26, following the Last Supper, Jesus and his disciples sung a hymn. And based on what we know about how Jews observed the Passover in the first century, we can know with almost certainty that what they sang was Psalm 118. And maybe you remember that when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this was a true prayer from the son to the father, but he was also quoting Psalm 22, verse one. Jesus knew the Psalms, he sang them, he prayed them. Uh, If a dorky drummer reading some poetry was enough for me to get into one poem, I think Jesus, the Lord of all creation, being into the Psalms is enough reason for us to get into them. There are 150 Psalms, and of those 150, 116 of those have superscriptions. Um, And a superscription is a line up above where the psalm actually starts in your Bible, and it has some sort of description or instruction. And we've got an image of a superscription uh, here that I can show you. This is actually for Psalm 23. So if your eyes are good enough to see it, Psalm 23 is at the top, and then below that it says a psalm of David. That's the superscription. About a third of the superscriptions are some sort of musical direction. It might say what instruments need to be played. Um, It might say the tune that it's to or what sort of song it is. And this tells us that psalms were meant to be sung to music. But it also tells us that psalms were meant for a congregation of people. We're supposed to experience them together, to read them together, to sing them together, and to pray them together Um, And I would say that's something most of us don't do commonly and is even perhaps a little bit uncomfortable for us, but I want us to try to practice doing that in the coming weeks this summer. When we think of the Psalms, we typically associate them with King David, who was the second king of Israel, and he didn't write all the Psalms, but as we just saw in the superscription for Psalm 23, he did write this one. And this is significant because one of the other things that we know about David is that he himself was a shepherd. You might remember the story in uh, 1 Samuel 16 when the prophet Samuel goes to the house of Jesse. He's going to meet his sons because he's going to anoint a new king. And he met all of Jesse's sons except for David. David wasn't there, it says, because he was out keeping sheep. So David chose this image of the sheep and the shepherd very intentionally because he knew the work of a shepherd. And most of us understand more or less what a shepherd is and sort of what they do, but most of us don't understand it experientially. Um, 
we have a shepherd family here, but are, have any of you actually done the work of a shepherd? Anyone ever owned a sheep? So unless I'm missing something, no one in this room experientially knows what it's like to care for a sheep. Um, we're separated by time in geography from that practice, so we need a bit of help understanding. I've, I've learned more about sheep and shepherds than I thought I would ever know over the past few weeks, but I wanted to take a deep dive because I really want to understand if God, through his word, is calling himself a shepherd and calling us a sheep. I want to know what that means. And what I've learned won't surprise you. Being a shepherd is hard work. There are no breaks because sheep are 100% dependent on their shepherd. Their well-being is 100% contingent on how their shepherd cares for them. If the shepherd is good, the sheep will thrive, but the opposite is true as well. So I want you to think about David. Probably the most well-known story of David, even if you didn't grow up in church, even if you don't know that much about the Bible, probably everyone has heard of the story of David and Goliath. In that story, Israel's army was at a standoff with the Philistines because they had a giant warrior named Goliath, and he was basically taunting Israel and hurling insults at, it, at them and saying, come on, who's going to fight me? Um, and David, who was just a boy at the time, wasn't even in the army. He was bringing food to his brothers who were in the army. But he hears Goliath and he's like, I'll go fight him. And Saul, who was king at the time, basically just blows him off and is like, you're just a boy. But I want you to listen to how David responded to Saul. This is in 1 Samuel 17, verse 34. But David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And he's speaking about himself. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Remember, this is a young boy talking about a freaking lion. I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. A good shepherd like David doesn't care for a sheep like I care for my cat when we're going out of town, just like leave a bunch of food in a bowl and wish for the best. Uh, a good shepherd puts his life on the line for his sheep. So when David penned the words, the Lord is my shepherd, this wasn't some cute image for him that he thought this will look good on pillows in Lifeway Christian Bookstore someday. <laughs> David meant the Lord went after me, a helpless lamb, and rescued me from the mouth of the lion and the bear. So the image of the Lord as a shepherd was very intentionally picked. And throughout scripture, God uses different images to illustrate the relationship between himself and his people. And the most common one that we see in scripture is the relationship between a father and a child. 
We also often see the relationship between a king and his people. But this image of the shepherd and his sheep has become the most striking to me. And here's why. A child, I mean, every metaphor is going to break down at some point, but a child is someday going to grow up and be like his or her father. If there's a king, there's a reality that even one of the king's own subjects could rise up and overtake the throne. But a shepherd is an entirely different species from his sheep. The sheep can know the shepherd and even have a relationship with the shepherd. The sheep can walk where he walks, lie where he lies, eat where he eats, drink where he drinks. But the sheep will never be like the shepherd. In Isaiah 55, 9, God says, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. God's thoughts, his being, who he is, is infinitely far beyond who we are. A sheep will never be a shepherd. So the image of the Lord as our shepherd is significant. And David wasn't even the first person to use this image. In fact, if you go all the way back to the first book in the Bible, when Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, in Genesis 48, he's nearing his death. He referred to God as the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. And the prophet Isaiah described God in Isaiah 40, saying, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. I want you to catch, he's going to gather the lambs, the children, but he's also going to gently lead the parents. In other words, he is a shepherd who is kind and caring to all of the sheep. And then in Ezekiel 34, great chapter. I highly recommend if you're wanting to take a deep dive into what does it mean that the Lord is our shepherd. I feel like there are two key passages and Ezekiel 34 is one of them. God says this about himself. You are my sheep, human sheep of my pasture, and I am your God. Because the Lord is our shepherd and we are his sheep, I want to give you something this morning that you probably weren't bargaining for when you got out of bed this morning. Sheep facts. Um, And I'm going to start pretty general um, with a few basics. The plural of sheep is sheep. And if you have a group of males and females, they're called sheep or a flock of sheep, or you can say a herd of sheep. But this is where it starts getting tricky. If they were just male sheep, You would call them rams. Um, I've got a picture of a ram here for you. Most of you know what to picture, um, especially if you're an OCS student, because here at OCS, our mascot is the rams. But rams are only male. Sorry if you're on the girls' volleyball team. Uh, (laughs) Rams are not a separate species. They are sheep, but rams are only male. Female sheep are called ewes, so... Girls, the fighting ewes, I don't know. Um, But here's a picture of an ewe and her lamb. 
And this is usually what you picture when you think of sheep. Usually when someone refers to a sheep, singular, they're referring to an ewe. And usually in the Bible, when we're talking about sheep, we're talking about the female sheep. So that's an important distinction that I want to make because rams have kind of a different disposition than uh, ewes and lambs do. But sheep and shepherds go way back in the Bible. Um, There was Adam and Eve at the beginning, and then their son Abel, he was a shepherd. Uh, Other famous shepherds in the Old Testament were Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Rachel was a shepherdess. Um, And then, of course, King David was a shepherd. And then you skip to the New Testament, and shepherds were among the very honored guests that God called to come meet baby Jesus. So uh, if we are the Lord's sheep, we should ask, what are sheep like? And this is what sheep are like. Uh, Sheep graze. They get all of their food from grazing grass and shrubs. Uh, You've heard the term fight or flight. Sheep only flee. Uh, Rams are a different story, but we're talking about sheep. Uh, You have probably never read a news article that said, uh, Florida man mauled by sheep. Um, Because sheep run. Their only defense is to run from danger and they flock together for protection. Sheep scare easily. They have a keen sense of hearing and any loud noise will send them running. And if one sheep scares, they all scare. This is why sheep dogs are so effective. The sheep see the dog as a predator. And so if one of them is scared, he gets the whole thing to move. That's how shepherds are able to move entire flocks. That's also, if you think about it, why did Israel like sheep so much Well, they were nomadic for hundreds and hundreds of years. They can get entire flocks of sheep across the wilderness just by like making a loud noise. They just take off running. It's easy. Uh, I've told you that sheep are 100% dependent on their shepherd. Here are just a few examples. It's common for a sheep to fall on her back and not be able to get back up on her own. This is a real thing, and it's common enough that they even have a term for it. It's called a cast sheep. Sheep, as they're grazing grass and shrubs, will just eat anything, including poisonous or hurtful things. Sheep get weighed down by their own wool unless someone shears it for them. I read an article about this sheep named Prickles who ran away and came back seven years later, and I've got an image of what Prickles looked like when she came back. If you don't shear a sheep, that junk just keeps growing. And because they have long wool, they're prone to getting uh, sticks and thorns and thistles and all kinds of stuff matted into their wool if they don't have a shepherd to groom them and care for them. They're also prone to parasites and bugs. And then, of course, because they're defenseless, they're prone to falling prey to predators. These are all things that a shepherd has to be diligent to tend to in order for the sheep to thrive. So as we spend the summer looking at our good shepherd, Um, in Psalm 23, I think you'll see that our Lord is a caring shepherd, but I think you're also going to see ways in which we tend to be helpless, skittish sheep. And I don't have to draw the straight lines, but I'm sure as I was going through this, you can even think of ways that we are like sheep. But as we've said, a sheep will never be a shepherd. And I just want to ask you a question to ponder What if the shepherd could choose to become a sheep 
why on earth would a shepherd ever choose to become a sheep? I've just told you they're defenseless. They're helpless. They literally have a herd mentality. If someone says you're a sheep, that's not a compliment. That's an insult. So why would a shepherd ever choose to become a sheep? In Ezekiel 34, God judges those who were meant to care for his sheep, Israel, but didn't. And this is what God says in Ezekiel 34, starting in verse 5. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered all over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or to seek them. But I want you to listen to verse 11. God reveals his plan to seek and to save his scattered sheep. For thus says the Lord God, behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. No matter where you were born and what kind of family you were born into, there's a reality that you were born as a lost sheep looking for a shepherd. And some of you have had caregivers and managers who didn't care well for you. They were indifferent to your needs. They failed to fight for you when predators attacked. Or worse, they treated you as a sheep to be slaughtered. But here's what is true. The Lord said that he himself would search for you. And he has come. And when the shepherd first came, some people called him Lord. Some people called him rabbi or teacher. He referred to himself as the son of man. But most people called him Jesus. But we know that he was the Lord, the shepherd that God promised. Because in Luke 19.10, this is what Jesus said about himself. The son of man came to seek and to save the lost. The very thing God promised he was going to do himself in Ezekiel 34. The gospel writer Mark tells us that in Mark 6, 34, Jesus saw a crowd of people and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. In John 10, Jesus tells us plainly, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I told you there were two passages that really just blow Psalm 23 wide open. Ezekiel 34 is one of those. John 10 is the other one. I wish I had an hour just to talk about John 10 this morning. I highly encourage that you read what the good shepherd himself says about himself in John 10. Jesus is the good shepherd that David wrote about in Psalm 23. Jesus is the Lord himself who has come to seek and to save the scattered sheep. And that is why the next thing that David writes 
in Psalm 23 is, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Um, I shall not want, I think the ESV is honoring the King James Version um, and kind of keeping that tradition because it's knit into the fabric of our uh, culture at this point. But a plainer way to say I shall not want is I lack nothing. If the Lord is your shepherd, you lack nothing. When David says, I shall not want, it isn't a hope. It isn't even a prayer. He isn't talking about a future afterlife reality like someday I shall not want. It is a statement of a fact, a present reality. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And I want to ask you, really, how does that hit you this morning? Can you say, I lack nothing? Is there some part of you that wants to roll your eyes or even get angry at the audacity of this statement? We all know what it is for someone to say, how are you doing? And you say, I'm fine when you know that your heart is broken. Is that what's going on here? Maybe you look at David and think, yeah, that's easy for you to say you were a king, you had a palace and servants, and you never had to pay bills. Yeah, you lacked nothing. But I want you to consider David's life. When he was just a boy, he was fighting bears and lions. When he was barely a man, he had to leave home because his best friend's dad was trying to kill him. David knew what it was to mess up bad. He knew the pain of losing a child. And when he was an old man, he found himself having to leave home again to flee for his life, this time from his own son. He wanted to kill him and take the throne from him. So if you think David's statement is some idealistic Bible speak that has no basis in reality, just read the rest of Psalm 23. You'll see a soul in need of restoration the valley of the shadow of death, even when he eats, he's still there in the presence of his enemies. I want you to think practically about the most godly men and women that you know. Maybe there's someone specific who comes to mind. They are not immune to suffering, are they? Do any of them say, I'm gonna tell you the secret to life you learn the most on the days when everything is easy and everything goes your way. Not one of them would say that. It is not the case that you shall not want because you'll be wealthy and your health and your family's health will be great and everything will go your way. That's a false gospel. If you want to find someone preaching that, you can find that but you won't find it coming from the mouth of Jesus. The reality is you lack nothing. You shall never want because the good shepherd will never leave you nor forsake you. Psalm 121 says that the Lord doesn't sleep. The reality, 
I don't know what you think of Jesus doing or where he is right now, but the reality scripture tells us is Jesus is interceding for you right now. And, and not just while you're at church, but when you're busy, when you're not acting anything like him, when your heart and your mind are 500 miles away from him, the reality is he is still your good shepherd interceding for you. He's a shepherd of your soul and no predator can snatch him from your hands. Death itself cannot harm you. Your cup overflows. This is true right now. But you will suffer. And I can promise you this because Jesus himself promised us this in John 16, 33. He said, in the world, you will have tribulation but take heart, I have overcome the world. You will suffer. In fact, in Hebrews 5.8, it says that Jesus, even though he was the son of God, learned obedience through what he suffered. If all this is true, then how can David say, I shall not want? It's because the thing for which we have the most desperate need is right here. Because of Jesus Christ, we have the presence of God. That is the greatest gift that we have at any given moment in our life. We have the presence of God. Everywhere, all the time, God is with us. And when we follow our good shepherd and trust that he himself is enough, we experience life without lack. The kind of life that compelled David to pen the words, your steadfast love is better than life. And that's from Psalm 63, a psalm that most historians think that he wrote when he was in a cave hiding from his own son. But when we stress when we worry, when we trust in our own efforts rather than our shepherds, we feel our lack and our utter helplessness. And I have to be honest, I can't stand here and say these things to you because I live them out well. The reality is I say these things to you because I know that they're true and it's how I want to live. And I get just glimpses. And I want you to get those glimpses and I want them to come more and more frequently for you. My hero um, is a 17th century French dude named Brother Lawrence. And uh, Pastor Chuck talked about him last week. You'll probably hear us talk about him some more. He made it his life's goal to be aware of God's presence and stay in constant conversation with God. And when he wrote about himself in a letter to someone, he would write in the third person because he was so humble, he didn't want to share what he had learned and make it sound like he was tooting his own horn or saying that he had arrived. So I took a quote from him and I had to change a bunch of pronouns so that it makes sense. But I, Brother Lawrence was writing about being satisfied in God's love. And I want you to listen to what he said. Experiencing these things makes me certain beyond all doubt that God is always in the depth of my soul, no matter what I do or what happens to me. Imagine what contentment and satisfaction I enjoy possessing such an ever-present 
treasure. I'm not anxious to find it and don't worry about where to look for it because I have already found it and may take whatever I want from it. I come in this morning anxious and uh, I'm a mental health counselor. I see anxiety all day long. I can tell you things that are true about anxiety. Like it's all about control. When we feel out of control, that's when our anxiety rises. I can look at my own anxiety and beat myself up for having anxiety and then think the Lord is my shepherd. Now I'm anxious because I don't feel like the Lord is my shepherd. You know what I'm talking about? Does anybody else experience that? But Brother Lawrence said, I'm not anxious to find it and don't worry about where to look for it because I've already found it. This doesn't come easily or naturally. So let's get real. In this room, some of you are scared that any day you may lose your job. And some of you can't seem to find one. Some of you have marriages that have fallen apart. Some of you have broken hearts. Some of you are in so much debt that you spend time doing anything you can not to even think about it. Some of you have broken relationships with family. Some of you have lost people that you love dearly. The only way that I can look at these things and say that your cup overflows and that you lack nothing and that goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life is if I turn my gaze away from the pain and the heartache and turn toward the good shepherd. He sees you. I want you to think about what you feel that you need this morning. Whether it's something tangible or whether it's a deep longing in your heart, what is it you feel that you need? The good shepherd knows what you need and he has put his life on the line to ensure that you get it. The good shepherd came to seek and save his lost sheep but even more than that, as we come to the table this morning, I want you to consider for you, the shepherd became a sheep and he was slaughtered on your behalf so that you don't ever have to fear anything. So that the presence of God is always with you and no matter what your lot in life is, you can say, I lack nothing. My cup overflows. I shall not want. The good shepherd stands before you, stooping to meet you at eye level. And he's saying to you this morning, the very thing, same thing that the father said to the older brother and the prodigal son. He's saying to you, Daughter, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. Daughter, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours.
Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you are present even now. Thank you that you meet your sheep and know your sheep's needs. I pray that your spirit would stir up our hearts to have joy and, and to be spurred on to worship you just knowing that you're always with us, and yet I know there are people in this room who struggle to believe this, who struggle to think that they're good enough to be one of your sheep. Lord God Almighty, have mercy on us. We believe Lord, help our unbelief. We pray all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.